This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode features depictions of violence, abuse, murder, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Eileen made her way down the crowded sidewalk, thinking that she might take her lunch in the shade of Brisbane City Hall's clock tower. But as the building came into view, she could instantly tell that something was wrong. A woman was walking along the outer edge of the clock tower, inching toward the edge of the thin safety netting that surrounded it. She was only a few steps away from a 150-foot drop to the roof below. Eileen crossed King George Square in an instant and charged up the steps into City Hall. She spotted the birdcage elevator from across the foyer. A sign hung across the bars of the door, out of order. Eileen spun on her heels and sped back in the opposite direction. She would have to take the stairs. Eileen flew up the narrow stairwell, taking the steps three, four, sometimes five at a time, Her heart pounded in her chest, but her legs continued to churn. Sunlight blinded her as she burst through the door onto the landing. The woman was there, on the edge, just a few feet away. She looked back over her shoulder at Eileen, with tears streaming down her face. She stepped backwards, off the ledge. Eileen lunged, reaching with all her might, Her outstretched fingers grazed the hem of the woman's dress for an instant before she plummeted out of sight. Eileen shut her eyes, clinging to the barristrade to hold her trembling body up. At last, she found the courage to open her eyes and look down. She had expected to see the woman's broken body or a gaping hole in the metal roof below, but There was nothing. The woman had vanished into thin air. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Brisbane City Hall in Queensland, Australia, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. 
Brisbane, or Brizzy, as it's known to locals, is the third largest city in Australia and the state capital of Queensland. Located on the country's eastern edge between the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast, the city is home to a subtropical climate and experiences warm to hot weather for the majority of the year. Trips to Brisbane include activities such as snorkeling, strolls along the Brisbane River's south bank, and hikes up Mount Kutha, named after the aboriginal word for honey. You probably wouldn't expect this sunny city to be a prime location for ghost hunting, but Brisbane is home to more than its fair share of haunted locales. And foremost among these is the iconic downtown landmark that is almost synonymous with the city itself, Brisbane City Hall. A long, rectangular, red-brick building lined with imposing Corinthian pillars, Brisbane City Hall has been a point of pride for Queensland people ever since its completion in 1930. The building's construction lasted 10 years and cost approximately 980,000 Australian pounds, more than 81 million Australian dollars today. At 300 feet high, the imposing clock tower that rises from its center was the tallest building in Brisbane for nearly four decades. But while its outer appearance is nothing to scoff at, the interior of the building is where it really shines. The main foyer houses vaulted ceilings and a grand marble staircase imported from Italy, Belgium, and South Wales. In addition to being the seat of local government, the City Hall has long been a focal point of public life in Brisbane, earning it the moniker, the People's Place. Since its grand opening, it has been host to countless music performances, local dances, and all manner of cultural events. Its guests include Queen Elizabeth II and the Rolling Stones. And according to local legend, it also happens to be haunted by not one, but four ghosts. The first of these specters resides in Brisbane City Hall's most visible feature, its central clock tower. The observation deck on the top floor provides a 360-degree view of the city. The view has changed significantly over the decades as skyscrapers and other modern structures emerged around it. But through all this time, the means of accessing the platform has remained the same, the oldest working manual crank elevator in Australia. But those who ride won't be alone. They'll be in the company of one Brisbaneite who's been riding the elevator for almost 90 years. George pried open the door to the control panel and stared at the mess of melted wires. He let out a groan of despair. He'd already had to repair the same elevator five times in as many weeks. Brisbane City Hall wasn't even scheduled to open for business for another two months, so it couldn't have been operated more than a dozen times at most. He simply couldn't understand what kept causing it to break down. But complaining about it wasn't doing him any good. So George rolled up his sleeves and got to work. Two hours later, George wiped his grease-covered hands on the pants of his coveralls and slammed the control panel shut. Rather than simply install another fuse, he decided to rewire the entire thing from the start. If that didn't fix the problem, well, better not jinx it. 
George crossed his fingers and flipped the power switch. A grin spread across his face as the motor chugged to life. So far, so good. But the next part would be the real test. George placed his hand on the crank and slowly turned it from the one position to two. As expected, the elevator began to rise. George breathed a sigh of relief as it traveled from the first to the second floor. He pulled the crank further, all the way to the final position. The cage continued to rise, passing the third floor. And then, the engine sputtered and died. The elevator ground to a halt, coming to a stop midway between the third and fourth floors. George cursed under his breath and kicked the mesh cage of the lift in frustration. He glanced up. Something was moving above him. Barely visible through the roof of the cage, a dark shape sat huddled on top of the elevator. He reached for the claw hammer protruding from his tool bag. He'd been taught not to hold a grudge against any of God's creatures. But if this critter was responsible for all the lift's troubles, it had to go. He pushed open the hatch and peered out into the darkness of the elevator shaft. Whatever he had seen crouched in the corner was now gone. But George wasn't one to give up easily. He clambered out of the lift cage onto the mesh roof, letting the hatch fall shut behind him. He looked around, but there was still no sign of the creature. The elevator shuddered and began to rise as the engine roared to life. Startled, George dropped to his knees and reached to open the trap door. He jumped back in surprise as human fingers reached up through the lift roof. They seized the rungs of the hatch and pulled it shut again. George pulled at the trap door with all his might, but it wouldn't budge. And the elevator was rising, gaining speed with every moment. George looked over his shoulder to see the ceiling hurtling toward him. His nose stung as it took in the putrid smoke pouring from the whirring gears and the large spinning pulley system that grew ever closer. There was no stopping his progress. His only other option would be to fling himself down the elevator shaft, something he could not bring himself to do. George made a silent prayer. He hoped he wouldn't feel the impact. As the ceiling came rushing at him, George let out a final scream before his body was crushed against the unyielding stone. For several decades, visitors to Brisbane City Hall's clock tower have reported seeing a chilling figure, the silhouette of a man standing in areas that were supposed to be inaccessible to the public he is said to be the ghost of a lift operator or repairman who was killed in an accident not long after it was first installed. Today, this ghost is cited as the reason why the lift frequently breaks down. While the lift's finicky behavior is more likely a result of its significant age, these mechanical problems are nothing new. It frequently broke down immediately following its installation, and two days after City Hall opened, a fire ignited in the elevator. 
Fortunately, it was extinguished before anyone was hurt. A potential explanation for the tale of the haunted lift lies in one of the first unnatural deaths to occur at Brisbane City Hall. On October 31, 1935, a construction worker named George Edward Betts stopped by City Hall to pay a water bill. While there, he was given a ride to the observation platform by the liftman, the similarly named George Jones. A few minutes after leaving Betts on the clock tower, Jones and several council members who were working at the time heard the violent crash of something smashing through metal. George Betts had either fallen or jumped off the observation platform, plummeting almost 150 feet to the copper dome roof below. George Betts might be the inspiration for the story of the lift man, or perhaps he and the ghost are one and the same. But while he was the first person to fall from the Brisbane City Hall Tower, he would not be the last. Coming up, we'll examine another of Brisbane City Hall's famous ghosts, the female phantom who haunts the Grand Staircase. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. According to local legend, the iconic clock tower of the Brisbane City Hall in Queensland, Australia, is haunted by the ghost of a liftman who died when the tower's elevator was first installed. This ghostly liftman could potentially be the spirit of George Betts, the first man to fall to his death from the clock tower. But just as George Betts was not the last person to meet his untimely demise in Brisbane City Hall, the liftman is not its only supernatural occupant. Many believe that the building is haunted by at least four ghosts. Perhaps the most famous of these is the unidentified female phantom who is said to haunt the foyer, grand staircase, and mezzanine balcony. Descriptions of this ghost are as varied as its sightings are numerous. Some say that she is a Brisbane socialite from decades past. Others insist that she's an old woman and still others, a young girl. One version of the story claims that she does not present a physical form at all, but is merely felt as a distinctly female presence. Skimming the historical record presents a number of potential candidates for this spirit's identity. The first possibility is Miriam Mary Alexander, a 55-year-old unmarried Brisbaneite who collapsed in the washroom on September 15th 1944. She was found some time later and rushed to a nearby hospital where she died that same day. Another woman proves a more likely candidate for the ghost's identity, both due to her proximity to the main foyer where the ghost is believed to reside and the shocking nature of her death. 
On December 21st, 1937, four days before Christmas, a 32-year-old woman named Hilda Angus Boardman rode the lift to the top of the clock tower and climbed out past the protective netting that had been installed after George Betts' fall from the same spot. Many bystanders, including Australian police officer Eileen O'Donnell, watched as Hilda Boardman leapt off the ledge and plummeted 150 feet. She crashed through the galvanized metal roof, breaking a thick metal scaffold on her way to the concrete floor. As with Miriam Alexander, Hilda Boardman's death did not actually transpire within the walls of City Hall. Her heart continued to beat as she was rushed to Brisbane General Hospital, where she soon died of massive injuries. The Brisbane Courier-Mail reported that before leaping from the tower, she had been an inmate at a private hospital in the area, suggesting she may have been suffering from a mental illness. While Hilda Boardman's public and shocking death seems to have been more likely to inspire ghost stories, the fact that neither she nor Miriam Alexander actually expired inside the walls of Brisbane City Hall leaves them as less than satisfactory candidates. But a third tale suggests that Brisbane City Hall's foyer ghost actually perished far earlier than either of these two women. In fact, some Brisbane locals believe that her death predates the building itself. During the late 1800s, the tract of land that would soon become downtown Brisbane was a vast swampland as far as the eye could see. According to legend, this ghostly woman drowned in these fairy waters. Mickey sat at the dining room table, grimacing at his untouched toast and his folded copy of the Brisbane Courier-Mail. He could hear the sounds of his wife, Ilsa, moving around their house's only other room, trying to get their six children out of bed and dressed for school. Normally, he would have been out the door and halfway to work by now, but he'd been particularly slow getting out of bed. They'd lost a good man yesterday when the crane had collapsed, the fifth accident since construction on the new city hall had begun. Governor Gould Adams had already been breathing down his neck over the delays. But that's just what you got for trying to build in the middle of a swamp. As well as it paid, Mickey was beginning to regret ever taking the job. Ilsa swept into the room and balked at the sight of her husband sitting at the table. She gently reminded him that if he was late for work, the governor was liable to start looking for a new foreman. Then she planted a kiss on the top of his bald head and glided back out of the room, shouting a final reminder not to forget his lunch pail again. Mickey wasn't sure why his wife was always so concerned about him getting enough to eat. He could afford to lose a few pounds. He pushed away from the table, down the last of his coffee, and tossed the toast to the dog. Mickey wove through the piles of red sandstone and oak lumber, massaging the side of his temple with his thumb. A sharp pain had been steadily growing behind his left eye, and that was before this new obstacle had arrived to ruin his day. The woman was back. 
Mickey spotted her as he reached the edge of the worksite, where a solid ground rapidly began to transition to the mud floor of the swamp. The aboriginal woman stood a few yards away in ankle-high water, watching the workers with narrowed eyes. She wore the same simple khaki frock, and her gray hair was tied back with a strip of cloth. Mickey removed his work boots and socks and waded out into the water until he stood directly in front of the woman. Her face was lined with creases and wrinkles. Mickey had never been able to decide if she was closer to 50 or 100 years old. In as reasonable a voice as he could muster, Mickey explained that his men would be digging on this land momentarily. There would be men and horses and shovels and drills. It would be dangerous. She had to move. She just stared at him, unblinking. The pain behind his eye bloomed again, infuriating Mickey even more than the woman's stare. He forced a smile, the one he'd learned through the years of explaining simple construction procedure to stubborn businessmen and politicians. Still trying to maintain his composure, he explained that the building would be going up whether she liked it or not, and if she refused to move herself, the city would find someone else to move her. At last, the woman blinked. For a moment, Mickey thought she was going to say something, but then her gaze shifted to peer over his shoulder at something above and beyond him. Mickey looked up as the first drops of rain hit his bald scalp. Just what he needed, more water. The storm arrived quicker than Mickey had thought possible. He dashed through the worksite, shouting commands over the howling wind, while the men worked furiously to fasten tarps over their equipment and building materials. He froze at the sound of wood cracking and splintering and turned to see the third crane bending in the wind. It was going to fall. Mickey raced toward the crane, grabbing a coil of rope from the ground and calling out for the workers to do the same. As they reached it, they hurled the ropes over the wooden beams, working quickly to tie down the teetering scaffold. Mickey heard someone shout his name and turned to find his waterlogged B-team leader rushing up. He said that one of his men had spotted a woman out in the swamp. The water level was rising quickly. The pain in Mickey's skull pounded angrily. The waterlogged rope slid through his hands, biting into the flesh of his palms. He looked up at the teetering crane and around at the men struggling to save it. If it fell, days of their hard work would be lost. Mickey told the team leader to grab a rope and pull. The woman in the swamp had made her choice, and he had made his. Hours later, Mickey sat on the tarp-covered stack of bricks, letting the warm sun dry his drenched clothes. The storm had gone just as quickly as it had arrived, miraculously taking Mickey's headache with it. All around, his men were clapping one another on the back in congratulations. All three of the cranes were still standing. They had done it. Mickey's stomach grumbled unhappily, and he realized he hadn't eaten all day. Ilsa wouldn't be happy with him. He had left his lunch pail at home again, 
just like she told him not to. He heard a shout from across the worksite. The low, dull ache bloomed once more in the back of his skull. Mickey climbed down off the tarp and made his way across the worksite, picking up speed as he went. A crowd of workers had gathered at the edge of the swamp, staring at something a few hundred yards away. It was a female figure, floating face down in the water. Mickey tore off his boots as he charged out into the water. It was up past his waist by the time he reached her frail figure in her pale blue dress. He gingerly reached down to turn her over. A wail escaped Mickey's lips as crippling pain erupted inside his skull. He lifted his dead wife from the water and buried his face in her neck while uncontrollable sobs of grief racked his body. A metal lunch pail floated past, glinting in the sunlight. For much of Brisbane's early history, the city was home to countless conflicts between European settlers and Aboriginal Australians, the indigenous peoples who had called the country's eastern coast home for over 50,000 years. It is estimated that as late as 1825, tens of thousands of Aboriginal Australians lived along the banks of the Brisbane River. By the time construction of the Brisbane City Hall was completed in 1930, their numbers had been decimated by countless massacres. To this day, some Brisbaneites contend that City Hall was built on a site sacred to the Aboriginal people and that this is the cause of its supernatural activity. While there is no clear evidence to suggest the site in question was significant in this way, the story possesses a glimmer of truth. Aboriginal Australians do consider some old watering holes to be sacred sites with special connection to the dreaming, a unique and complex concept from Aboriginal culture that simultaneously encompasses all life and refers to a period of history that predates the creation of the physical world. Brisbane City Hall was built in the middle of swampland and specifically on a large reservoir and watering hole known as the Horse Pond. It is believed that in the 40 years before 1900, the swampy area that would eventually become downtown Brisbane was subjected to five major floods. So while no historical drowning victims have been identified, the idea that Brisbane City Hall was built on a sacred Aboriginal site is not implausible, nor is the possibility that its foyer ghost met her end in a watery grave. Up next, we'll explore the ghosts who lurk in Brisbane City Hall's most haunted corridor. Now back to the story. Brisbane City Hall in Queensland, Australia, is said to be home to at least four ghosts. First is the phantom liftman. Second is the spectral figure of a woman who is occasionally seen descending the grand staircase to the first floor. The third ghost is said to be an American sailor from World War II. According to local legend, he was stabbed to death by a rival after the two men argued about each other's significant other. 
They say that if you find a quiet corner of Brisbane City Hall, you can sometimes still hear them arguing, followed by the sound of a knife being drawn. Once again, Brisbane's historical records offer no evidence of an American sailor dying on the premises, but there is some historical context that might shed light on the origins of this ghost story. It centers on an event that is not particularly well known outside of Australia, the Battle of Brisbane. During World War II, many American servicemen were stationed in Queensland, Australia, before being deployed to action in the Pacific. While the United States and Australia were allies in the fight against the Axis powers, American soldiers were not always well received by the local population. This was particularly true in the city of Brisbane, which at one point housed over 80,000 U.S. troops. At the time, American soldiers were much better paid than Australian servicemen, and their uniforms were considered to be far more attractive. This gave American soldiers a significant edge in courting Australian women, and ultimately resulted in some 12,000 marriages by the end of the war. Australian soldiers and male civilians were none too happy with the situation. A popular Australian refrain listed the three problems with the Americans. They were overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Tensions between the soldiers reached a climax on November 26, 1942. After weeks of scattered brawls and bar fights, a massive riot broke out between the forces that lasted two days. By the time the city was under control again, one Australian soldier was dead, and hundreds of men on both sides had been injured. Stories about the riot were suppressed outside of Australia, but the people of Brisbane remembered. The riot left deep resentment toward the American troops, and seems to have birthed the ghost story of an American sailor in Brisbane City Hall. Which brings us to the building's fourth and final ghost. This spectral force is described only as sinister and powerful. It is said to haunt a cluster of rooms on the building's third floor, collectively known as Room 302. This small area is said to have been the center for more paranormal activity than the rest of City Hall combined. Ethereal whispers creep from the shadows, and the sounds of hurried footsteps can be heard around every corner. Furniture moves without warning, upsetting carefully maintained filing systems. At some point in the 1950s, the strange occurrences are said to have gotten so bad that the city council members moved all business out of the wing. Room 302 was temporarily used as a photography darkroom, but hauntings persisted. Eventually, the wing was abandoned entirely. By the 1980s, the stories of strange sounds in the walls had been mostly forgotten, and the new city council sought to utilize the rooms once more. Several walls were torn down, so room 302 could be converted into a children's daycare center. Nora softly chided Tao before taking the five-year-old boy's hand and leading him to the circle of the other children. 
Chow had been the biggest handful of the lot since she had started as a teacher's aide at the daycare center, but he was also her favorite. The way he would stand apart from the others, staring off into oblivion with a glassy, distant look, reminded her so much of her own younger brother, Jack. Jack's teachers had labeled him a daydreamer, among other less kind things. Nora was determined that Tao would not receive any such labels. For weeks, she had avoided mentioning his behavior to his mother, despite the daycare manager's insistence that she do so. Each time he wandered away from the group, Nora would patiently take his hand and lead him back to the others. After a typically hectic morning, Nora sat in the corner of the dimly lit playroom, scrolling through the messages on her phone. The kids had been down for their naps for just over 15 minutes. In half an hour, she'd wake them up for the final activity before their parents came to pick them up for the day. She raised her eyes from her phone screen and scanned the room, noticing with a start that the chair behind Mrs. Reese's desk was empty. The daycare leader had stepped out without saying anything. Nora slipped her phone back into the pocket of her jeans, silently chastising herself for not being more alert. She had to be the responsible one when Mrs. Reese was out. She turned back to the rows of sleeping children. One of the mats was empty. A blue blanket lay beside it, with the head of Tao's fuzzy stuffed koala poking out. But Tao himself was gone. Nora called Tao's name gently as she padded down the narrow corridor. She knew she'd have to be louder if she actually wanted him to hear her, but she really didn't want to run into Mrs. Reese, or even worse, one of the children's parents. A door up ahead was open, just a crack. As she drew nearer, she could hear voices wafting from inside, raised male voices. For a moment, she was filled with horror at the thought that the five-year-old had wandered into a city council meeting. But none of the rooms in this hall were supposed to be used for city business. In fact, most of the rooms in this wing weren't used at all. Nevertheless, the voices grew louder as she crept closer to the room. There were two of them, both male. One of them had an American accent, while the other was clearly Australian. And by the sounds of things, they weren't on the best of terms. Nora paused as she reached the door, turning her ear to the open crack to listen. The American man was laughing. He said that the Australian could have whatever he wanted soon enough. The American would be shipping out in a few weeks, and he'd be all done with it then. The Australian didn't like that suggestion very much. He started shouting profanities at the American, howling at the top of his lungs. Nora looked around wondering why no one else was coming to see the commotion. If the men kept on like this any longer, they would ruin the kid's nap. If no one else was going to tell them to keep their voices down, Nora would have to do it. She pushed the door open. The room Nora saw within was bathed in an unearthly red light, a photographic darkroom, and there was no one inside. The voices of the American and the Australian had completely disappeared. Nora stepped through the doorway, 
scanning the corners for any signs of the arguing man. But there was no place for anyone to hide, and no door besides the one she had just entered through. It was like the men had vanished into thin air. Nora moved between the rows of chemical bath trays, stopping to peer into one. A single photo lay on the bottom, glowing in the eerie red light. Goosebumps crawled up Nora's arms as she stared at the image. It showed a middle-aged woman in an old-fashioned dress, standing in front of a marble grand stairway that led up from the main foyer. And the image was changing, fading rapidly, the woman's features blurring into nothing. Nora had left the door open, and the natural light was ruining the exposure. Feeling pangs of guilt for the poor photographer, Nora whirled back toward the door. A man loomed over her, oppressively close. His features were stretched in a sinister grin, and he wore an odd little white cap, like one taken from a sailor's costume. He would have appeared a bit comical had he not been bathed in the eerie red light. The man cackled maniacally as he took a step toward Nora. She recognized that laugh. It belonged to the American she heard through the door. A second voice sounded in her ear, causing her to jump and whirl around to face a stout, balding man in a crumpled gray suit and features stretched in a look of unbridled fury. Simultaneously, both men charged. Nora leapt back as the men collided. They ignored her completely as they fought, crashing through the tables and knocking aside chemical bath trays as they pummeled one another. The Australian raised something high above his head, which glinted as it caught the red light. Nora gasped as the knife plunged down into the American sailor's back. Nora turned and bolted through the door. She flew down the corridor, making for the birdcage lift at the end. The door was open, and she could see a short man in gray coveralls fiddling with the lift's manual crank control. He looked up as Nora flew into the cage and asked what floor she needed. She told him she didn't care. She just needed to get out of there as soon as possible. The liftman nodded understandingly. He drew the elevator's cage door shut, then turned the crank control to the first position. Nora shut her eyes as the elevator began to descend, trying to force her breathing to slow. She couldn't wait to get outside, to put as much distance between herself and the madman on the third floor. Then it hit her. In her terror, she had forgotten all about Tao and the other children. She had left them with those maniacs. She told the operator to stop the lift. He had to take her back. Nora opened her eyes, and the man in the gray coveralls was gone. She was alone in the elevator, which had come to a stop between the third and fourth floor. Something moved above Nora, rattling the cage. She looked up. A dark shape stood on the roof, staring down at her. Nora shrieked as human fingers reached down through the mesh, and the hatch in the roof began to lift. 
Fueled by terror, she reached up and grabbed the trap door and pulled it shut again, knocking the manual crank control in the process. The lift shuddered and began to rise, slowly at first, then gradually gaining speed. The figure on the top of the cage pulled harder, but Nora refused to let go. She lifted her feet off the floor, using her body weight to keep the door shut. The lift descended faster and faster. There was a horrible, manic scream, and then the cage slammed into the roof. A torrent of blood oozed through the elevator roof, like sausage pressed through a meat grinder. Nora stumbled back, screaming at the top of her lungs. She had just enough wherewithal to wrench open the elevator door and stumble out. Sunlight blinded her. She had stepped out onto the observation platform at the top of the clock tower. And there, just a few feet ahead of her, was Tao. The five-year-old boy was standing on a ledge outside the protective netting that wrapped around the tower. One step in either direction, and he would fall to his death. Nora pleaded with Tao to step away from the ledge. Tears began to form in her eyes. Tao didn't move. Nora stepped toward him, still crying, on the verge of hysteria. She didn't know what was happening. She just knew she had to get Tao off the ledge and back to firm ground. She climbed over the barrier and stepped out onto the ledge. Tao still hadn't moved an inch. Just a few more steps and she would have him. Then she blinked and Tao was gone. He hadn't fallen. He had never been there at all. Nora stood on the ledge, staring into the clear blue sky. She had lost her grip on reality. That much was clear. She had to get back to firm ground. She just couldn't look down. But she did. Nora stood stock still, gaping at the vision before her. The Brisbane that she knew was gone, replaced by endless swamp and marshland. The city hall was the only structure in sight. But there was one other figure. A few hundred yards in front of the building, a woman in a simple khaki frock stood in ankle-deep water, staring up at Nora. Even from this great distance, she could feel the woman's eyes upon her. Nora heard the door to the observation platform fling open and turned automatically. She stared back at the figure standing in the doorway. It was a young woman, no older than herself, but strangely dressed in an old-fashioned police officer's uniform. Before either Nora or the policewoman could say anything, her heels slipped and she tumbled backwards. Wind buffeted Nora's body as she fell, drowning her screams. For many years, the wing formerly known as Room 302 was utilized by Brisbane City Hall's daycare center. 
Fortunately, none of the youngsters reported anything like the strange occurrences that had plagued the area in previous decades. In 2009, the entire third floor underwent a significant restoration, and the daycare center was permanently closed. Today, the purportedly haunted area is home to a collection of art and history galleries known as the Museum of Brisbane. Room 302, the phantom lift operator, the female specter on the grand staircase, and the American sailor from World War II. The four entities who haunt Brisbane City Hall are more than just ghost stories. They're glimpses into a building with deep cultural significance to a city with a rich and vibrant history. So if you're planning a trip to Australia's eastern coast, keep Queensland's capital city in mind. By all means, enjoy a hike up Mount Kutha, and certainly don't miss a refreshing plunge in Anagara Dam. But if you're in the mood for something a little more chilling, why not take a ride on Australia's oldest crank-operated elevator? At the very least, you'll have plenty of company. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Andrew Kelleher. I'm Greg Polson.